win conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome former Congress member Dennis Kucinich. His new memoir, The Division of Light and Power, it is a gripping, moving, and lucidly written account of the hidden mechanisms of corporate power in the United States and what happens when these corporate interests are challenged. Then on the program, I'll play excerpts of a talk that I recently hosted for KPFA with award-winning poet and essayist Lisa Wells. Her new book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, introduces trailblazers and outliers from across the globe who have found radically new ways to live and reconnect to the earth in the face of climate crisis. Stay with us on the Project Censored show for Dennis Kucinich and Lisa Wells. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, skies and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are honored to welcome former U.S. Congress member Dennis Kucinich. Dennis Kucinich has a new book out, a memoir called The Division of Light and Power. That is a riveting story of his life in politics going all the way back to Cleveland, Ohio City Council when he was elected at 23 years old, his time as mayor in Cleveland, and the extraordinary battles that Dennis Kucinich waged against literally private power in the public interest. The division of light and power, Dennis Kucinich tells that story. Dennis Kucinich served 16 years in the U.S. Congress, twice a candidate for president, and during his term as Cleveland mayor between 1977 and 79, the Fraternal Order of Eagles recognized him as, quote, the outstanding public official in America. In recent years, the Washington Post magazine has called Kucinich the future of American politics. Well, I would say it's certainly about time for that. Dennis Kucinich, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. Hey, it's great to be with you. Special thanks to Eileen Proctor as well for reconnecting us. You know, you have a very powerful historical quote going back over 100 years to the turn of the 20th century in your book, The Division of Light and Power, by the founder of Muni Light, the mayor of Cleveland in the first decade of the 20th century, Tom Johnson, who said, I believe in public ownership of public service monopolies. Because if you do not own them, they will in time own you. They will corrupt your politics, rule your institutions, and finally destroy your liberties. Well, I cynically might say, are we there yet? But Dennis Kucinich, you stand as testament to the reality that maybe we're not there yet. And there is something that we can fight for. Dennis, tell us that story. Let me just say at the outset, thank you for this opportunity to be on Project Censored. What Tom Johnson had to say was prophetic when it came to Cleveland because the private power company corrupted the politics of the city and ruled the institutions of the city, including the rest of the business community and the media. But they did not destroy our liberties because I was privileged to lead an effort to overturn the sale to cancel it when I was elected mayor, and then to fight to resist the extraordinary pressure brought about by banks and the mob to get me to sell. So I'm very grateful that I've had the opportunity to write the story. And I'm grateful that I had an opportunity to defend Mayor Tom Johnson's legacy 
You know, Lincoln Steffens wrote of Mayor Johnson in Steffens' book called The Shame of the Cities, that Johnson was the best mayor of the best governed city in the United States. And that was principally because the approach that he took for municipal ownership. Indeed. And Lincoln Steffens, a towering, muckraking journalist of that era. And that is just a stellar series that he wrote starting in St. Louis, moving around. He talked about the unholy alliance between big business and the political class. And Dennis Kucinich, that's exactly the story that not only you tell, but you lived. What drove you into politics at such an early age, 23 years old on the city council? You know, remember, I got elected on my second time around. And the reason why I ran in the first place is that I've always felt that my life was about service to others. There's different ways to serve, of course. And I thought I'd give politics a try. I was part of that generation called forth by John F. Kennedy when he said, uh, let the word go forth in this time and place that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. It was from his inaugural. He was actually referring to his generation, not necessarily the one that I was a part of. But we heard that call. We said, yes, it was a call for our own involvement. And so that led me to run for city council at age 20. And I lost the first time and campaigned for two years. And two years later, I was elected in a landslide, I think 16 votes. And you won the old fashioned way, right? You were on foot hitting doors. There's no social media back in the day. You had the big papers and the big machinery. I think you took people by surprise. I campaigned door to door for two years. So there's a certain relentlessness that which must attend any effort to break through and surmount the power of a machine. No one in my family had been involved in politics and no one any money. Those who did certainly kept quiet about it. And I decided that I wanted to serve in the community in which I went to high school, south side of the city of Cleveland. So it was a long campaign. If you clock it all out, it was about a 30-month campaign. The first part of it, I lost. And then two years later, I won. Well, certainly the people of Cleveland and indeed the people of this country, I think, are all the better for your lifelong service. You know, it's interesting that someone else that rose to prominence from that era also heard the call of John Kennedy but he went a really different direction. That would be Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton went a very different neoliberal direction than you. Your political compass has never strayed far from the public interest. And so if you could distill this David Goliath story of how you stood up in the face of all adversity, up to and including threats to your own life, taking on the 1970s equivalent of Tammany Hall in Cleveland, Ohio, with the major private power company, that just wasn't going to quit until they got their pentacles into anything. If I was to try to pick one quality out that caused me to not succumb to either the blandishments, the threats, or worse, of the political establishment, it was or is my spiritual center. I'm not talking about religion here. I'm talking about a moral code a polar star of one's conduct that you kind of follow ethical conduct. I've always had this sense of fairness as a child, even 
and certainly a well-informed sense of right and wrong. And again, it was never about religion. It was always about do the right thing, even when no one's looking. Uh, I had a sixth grade teacher by the name of Sister Leona, who left the class for a moment. When she returned, the class was in chaos. She was very displeased about that. She told the children, take out a piece of paper and a pencil, and she wrote a poem on the board. And then she said, I want you to copy this 50 times. It was like, whoa, you know, you're sixth grade. There goes your evening. You're going to be writing a poem 50 times. And the poem, very short poem called The Minute, I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. Give account if I abuse it. Heaven, help me if I lose it. Just one tiny little minute. But eternity is in it. When you come from a place where, where every moment counts, where, where whether anyone's looking or not, you're trying to apply a moral measure to every moment. I just found that's the only way I could live. And it wasn't about being goody two-shoes, holier than now, better than anybody else. No way. This relates to the choices I made. And then there was always this four foot nine inch 97 pound varsity third string, by the way, varsity quarterback who didn't know enough when to stay down, just kept getting back and pushing forward. That's what you've been doing your entire life in the public interest. And again, the epic battle that begins your political career in a lot of ways is your struggle to become mayor elected by the people of Cleveland to take on and literally coming in now to the many different layers of meaning to the title of your book, The Division of Light and Power. You took on the major private city's electrical system that was trying to devour Muni Light, the public utility. And again, it's, it's a story right out of, of the late 19th century. I mean, you've got mob bosses, corrupt politicians, corrupt business people, and for me, too, I'm going to get into the media later, but the power of media and censorship and how it affects so much around us and what we do and are, are able to do. But Dennis Kucinich, could you talk a little bit about this epic struggle where you basically said no to all of the powers that be? And even though you were able to win in the long run, you paid a price for it. It still goes back to knowing the difference between right and wrong. So I had the media, particularly the newspapers both political parties, the entire business community, including all the banks, the council. There was an array of forces that I suppose I was to respect and capitulate to, but I, I didn't see it that way. The people who put me in there, coming from neighborhoods across the city, where you know, it matters what people pay for electricity. It matters if they can save 20% on their bill. And so I was fighting to save a municipal electric system, which provided cheaper electricity and kept taxes low by sending the savings along to the city in terms of lower charges for streetlights and, and other city facilities. So I saw it really as a question of an economic justice. And once you see something like that, if you've got a heart or a soul, you, you, in some ways, your decision's already made for you. You must take a stand. And that's what I did. As you point out, it was at a price. You know, the bank, Cleveland Trust Bank, as I write in the book on December 15, 1978, largest bank in Ohio, one of the largest banks in the United States, 
told me, look, either you sell the municipal electric system to the private utility, which the bank was a business partner, or we, the bank, will not renew the city's uh, credit and loans, and loans that I hadn't even taken out that were taken out by my predecessor. So I said no. And I might add that we were ready to pay off the loans with city property and other resources. They didn't want that. They wanted Muni Light. So I said no. And they put the city of Cleveland into default and kept it there until I left office, even though the people of Cleveland voted to tax themselves to pay off the defaulted notes. Didn't matter. The banks committed to relieving the the, uh, stigma of default from the city if the people pass the tax, people pass the tax, the banks renege the next day. So, you know, Cleveland was subject to a, a level of impressment and corruption that is, was, is extraordinary. And my job was to say no. And the consequences for that were great for the city and for me personally. We still have a municipal electric system, which has, over the years, saved the people of Cleveland hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars on their taxes and on their utility bills. So it wasn't mine to give away. I mean, frankly, Uh, although, oh, if I'd have made that deal, you know, it was like right to the top. Uh, Once, once the corporations find out they've got somebody who's willing to be their guy to carry their water, to advance their agenda. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's, no no end to the amount of opportunities that come up. But, you know, I have this thing about wanting to own my own soul. Well, you can certainly say that. And you took on the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. That's the private company this is. And, you know, you say earlier on in the book, Dennis Kucinich, you talk about taking on City Hall. But in order to do that, you have to know where City Hall is. So it doesn't necessarily have the same address as, as in the phone book, so to speak. Can you explain that? <laughs> what I write is that as I began my political journey. The book opens up on Christmas, 1969. There was a blackout. My wife and I were shopping in downtown Cleveland. All the lights go out. Well, that sets the tone for the book because there's continual blackouts. There's continual darkness of information and motive and everything. So it's kind of, it's a leitmotif of the book. But as I bring the reader into the story, the reader comes to understand that the issues at stake here really go to the heart of whether we have a democracy or not, whether or not decisions can be made in, if there is such a thing as public interest in the public interest. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I felt very strongly that as I got into politics as an elected official and I saw how corporations just try to run everything in their own interest. I just said, you know, they didn't put me here. They don't even live in a city. They don't live in my neighborhood. They don't live in any city neighborhood. So who are they to tell me what I have to do as an elected official? And I took that attitude with me into not just city council, but an office called clerk of the Cleveland Municipal Court and then on to mayor of Cleveland. And frankly, later on, state, Senate, Congress, that's kind of who I am. If it's right, you don't have to threaten me. I'll go along with it. But if it's wrong, it doesn't matter what you say you're going to do to me. Wrong guy. (laughs) We're speaking to that wrong guy right now. It is Dennis Kucinich, serving 16 years in the U.S. Congress, twice candidate for president. We're speaking about his new book, The Division of Light 
and power. And Geraldo Rivera says it's a cross between The Godfather and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Dennis Kucinich will be back and continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are honored to welcome Dennis Kucinich, former Congress member, also author of The Division of Light and Power, out from Finney Avenue Books earlier this summer. Dennis Kucinich, before the break, we were talking about the early part of your history in politics, what drove you to write this book, the important stories in this book. There's a couple of specifics maybe we can get into before the break. We were dancing around the problem of corporate personhood. You were describing it really well without using the term, and you said the corporations don't live in your neighborhood, they don't live in any neighborhood. Interestingly enough, when you're taking on these groups, it's almost as if they're amorphous, but they're ubiquitous. These private companies and their minions in the alleged public sphere, they work against you and they work against the public interest. And in fact, at one time, they really frame the public as the enemy. Absolutely right. It's a very uh, perceptive analysis that you just offered there. They frame the public as the enemy. When I was doing my research for this book, I came across memoranda, internal documents from the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. Their effort to take Muni Light uh, took on the veneer of a military type campaign. It's interesting how in the 20th century, corporations were able to achieve a kind of personhood. Of course, that decision goes back to the 19th century. But if, in fact, corporations are people, then some of the corporations are very bad people. And if corporations are people, then the officers of those corporations should be held accountable for criminal conduct. You've done that. You've done that throughout your career. You've always tried to put what's right ahead of any other agenda. Up through your time in Congress opposing the invasion of Iraq, we just saw the chopper lifting off the embassy again. I saw that it was only going to end in a disaster. The conceit that the U.S. can go anywhere in the world and tell people how to run their local affairs is a grand hubris. We have concerns here at home that we have not addressed. The violence that is in our society, the poverty in our society, 
uh, we're going to tell other nations how to run their affairs, and we don't even know how to run ours. I've always felt that was a majestic mistake. So, you know, I spoke out and caused votes to occur to try to take America in a different direction. I received my training, by the way, in Cleveland. And the Division of Light and Power points out the lessons that I learned. And, you know, if you want to know anything about my congressional career, look back to Cleveland and you'll see why I was not hesitant nor fearful of taking on a war, saying, you know, this is fundamentally wrong. Well, Dennis Kucinich, a theme throughout the book and certainly throughout all the work we do at Project Censored really looks at media and the impact of media, the power of media, and unfortunately, the co-option of the alleged free press by corporate interests. And your story, again, going back to Cleveland, the media is really a major flank of the power structure. And you name names, you connect the dots. You don't need to be theoretical about the propaganda model from Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, you basically just line it right up with the connection between the big money, the advertising, the corporate control of the press. It was radio, television, newspaper, and the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company was regularly sending editorials over to various media and getting them printed verbatim or virtually verbatim, in effect, helping to propagandize the public about their private utility machinations. And I documented this in the book. The media was in the tank for the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company and for the banks. That's where they got a great amount of advertising revenue from. We, we should never forget A.J. Liebline's uh, fabled uh, quote about media ownership. He said, freedom of the press belongs to the man who owns one. There you have it. He was right. And, you know, you mentioned some people in your book that basically lost their jobs in the press. Yeah, four reporters, all of whom were at the top of their game, just swept aside by this corporate juggernaut, which insisted on reporters who were compliant, obedient, and would not make waves. Everything in the book's documented, as you pointed out, and it was a forerunner of what was about to happen. And American media with the increasing corporatization of the media. Well, we saw that in the 80s. Right after this period, we saw that Ben Bigdikian warned about monopoly media power. We saw the ending of the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. We saw Bill Clinton's telecom bill in 1996 that allowed and paved the way for more ownership. We now have a handful of tech companies to control these messages. In many ways, Dennis Kucinich, it hasn't changed. The concentration of power has gotten much more dangerous. Dennis Kucinich, this is a really long book, 700-some pages. You are now also returning kind of full circle to where you began in politics in a lot of ways uh, back in in a mayoral race for Cleveland. Um, Could you wrap up some of your thoughts and what you're hoping to do? Sure. Well, you know, the, the, uh, the, the book's going very well, which I'm grateful for. Early in the year, after a lot of thought, I decided that I would run again in Cleveland. Cleveland is a much smaller city now. It's one of the most violent cities in America. Unfortunately, it has one of the highest poverty rates of any city in the country. It needs a lot of help. And I just thought that with all the experience that I have, 
I think I can do something to be of help to the people who have remained in the city who, who need a champion, who need someone to stand up and speak out for them. The 20% of the people are making $10,000 or less a year. The third of the city that's living at or below the poverty line, the half of the children are living at or below the poverty line. You know, they need somebody to stand up and speak out for them. And, you know, it's my family. It's the way I look at it. So I'm I'm back in the mix. The votes start coming in soon, early voting, and they'll be all tallied on September the 14th. Well, Dennis Kucinich, thanks so much for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule. Always doing good things. Again, we've been joined today by Dennis Kucinich. His new book is The Division of Light and Power. Dennis Kucinich, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for this great interview. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Dennis. Take care. Bye. And that was Dennis Kucinich talking about his new memoir, The Division of Light and Power. Up next on the Project Centered Show, we'll hear from award-winning poet and essayist Lisa Wells. She recently gave a talk that I hosted regarding her new book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. Stay tuned. was the same day in another time I felt your pain and you felt mine and all that we tried and all of our tricks still couldn't help what couldn't KPFA Radio, 94.1 FM and Project Censored, present Lisa Wells. Her latest book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. In search of answers and action, award-winning poet and essayist Lisa Wells brings us Believers, introducing trailblazers and outliers from across the globe who have found radically new ways to live and reconnect to the earth in the face of climate change, in fact, in the face of climate crisis. We find ourselves at the end of the world. How then shall we live? Like many of us, Lisa Wells has spent years overwhelmed by news of apocalyptic scale climate changes and a coming sixth extinction. She did not need to be convinced of the stakes. But what can be done? Wells embarked on a pilgrimage, seeking answers in dedicated communities outcasts and visionaries on the margins of society. Blending reportage, memoir, history, and philosophy, Wells opens up seemingly intractable questions about the damage we've done and how we might reckon with our inheritance. Bill McKibben says of believers, we are living in an extreme moment and one where it's very hard to know what effective action looks like against cries of a scale we've not before encountered. These accounts of people trying to grapple with that reality are sometimes inspiring, often cautionary, and always spur to thinking about how the rest of us might accomplish the most we can. Our guest this evening, Lisa Wells, 
is author of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, also The Fix from 2018. Wells is the winner of the Iowa Poetry Prize. Her poems and essays have been published by the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, Granta, The Believer, and Plus One and others. She lives in Seattle, Washington. Tonight, Lisa Wells shares with us the six-year journey of believers as text, yet ongoing, and reminds us through believers that we can make a difference even if we are peering into an abyss and make a life at the end of the world. Please welcome our guest this evening, master storyteller and phenomenal wordsmith and writer, Lisa Wells. Lisa? Thanks, Mickey. It's really an honor to be here tonight with all of you. Though I can't see your faces, I feel your attention and I'm grateful for it. I'm here to tell you about this book that I believe in that took six years to write. And so I'll try to do right by it as well. I'm a high school dropout and my only formal training was as a poet later in life. So I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I'm really truly an outsider coming into these communities and trying to find out what they know. I guess the other thing to say is that though I'm coming without the expertise to provide solutions, I do think that holding space for outcasts and iconoclasts who have made an attempt at creating a positive construct in which to live, however fallible or incomplete, is a useful intervention at this point in time too. In addition to taking down these merchants of death who are destroying our planet and making a future for our grandchildren impossible, et cetera, which is very important work. I also think they're kind of an extension of a system that many of us are enthralled to, to greater and lesser extents. So we need visions of how else we might live. My primary feeling at the time was despair. I couldn't see any feasible way to proceed. And out of that um, bloomed, out of that paralysis bloomed a deeper terror that I was powerless to keep anyone or anything I loved alive. The book opens with this epigraph from a Charles D'Ambrosio story where a nun asks this little boy, Ignatius, do you know what the opposite of love is? And the kid says, hate. And she says, despair. Despair is the opposite of love. And that line really stuck with me. And I wasn't even sure why for a long time, maybe until I finished writing the book, but I kind of held it there um, as the epigraph. And, um, you know, when we come to the end of the book, it, it all kind of makes sense. But um, at the time, uh, this disillusionment that I felt uh, produced a kind of despair, which is the absence of hope. And I think he figures it as the opposite of love because it's enervated, you know, not to pathologize despair. I mean, it's a natural reaction for many of us for periods of time, but it's not very active. So the idea that love can be something that we perform in service of life and future generations. So what about the rest of us who are the descendants of colonizers and people who have inherited a way of life that is destructive. How do you fight that gravity? Because it's immense. And I think people often talk about it like it's simple, like, you know, just get your together and be a good person. But I don't think that's true. And I don't think it's fair or useful to characterize it as such. It's actually incredibly hard to fight the gravity of what you've learned and, and what surrounds you. I'll just look at a couple of land restoration folks who we finished the book on and, and who really 
changed my life and my sense of what's possible. Some of y'all know Ron Good. He's a North Fork Mono elder who uses traditional ecological knowledge to repair ecosystems and support the health of the land. These landscapes had been totally choked with brush and illegally dumped human garbage and tons and tons of conifer saplings that were super desiccated. And they had been functioning meadows for generations and they were gathering places for the Mono. And in a partnership with the U.S. Forest Service, one 12-hour day, as they told it to me, a bunch of volunteers came on the land and cleared out all the trash. And then Ron set a cultural burn, which is one of those low-intensity fires that we're hearing more and more about. And it cleared out a bunch of the underbrush. These fires do a lot. They clear the way for fire-following plants. They burn out pests in the duff. And then they take out some of the saplings while leaving the bigger trees, particularly these black oaks that produce acorn and our staple crop. And so it became a functioning meadow again, basically. 15 years later, a spring had bubbled up in the center of it. There was huge species return, tons of edible and medicinal plants, tons of traditional plants used for basketry. Lots of mammals had returned. And this is all in a space of 15 years. Not only had the water come back, not only is the meadow now capable of holding water coming out of the Sierra and preventing drought, it acts as a fire break when these big fires come through. And, and it's home to the praying mantis, which is the natural predator of these beetles that have been just ravaging the trees up there. What's amazing about that to me is that you know, it's not like you just set the fire and then never came back. There were times that they came back and continued to maintain the garden that they'd helped to resurrect. But, you know, it wasn't rocket science. It was something better, which is what happens when people over the course of thousands of years in intimate relationship with the same place, figure out what it takes to really help that place to thrive and prevent catastrophe. <laughs> So that was kind of a local example. And then quickly to touch on some of the global examples, John D. Liu, he runs these ecosystem restoration camps, which is a situation where seriously degraded lands, people come and they convene a camp. And in exchange for your sweat and labor, you can learn how to restore the land. So people learn how to sink water and build terraces and sow seeds. He's doing them all over the world. He was a documentarian for a number of years. He documented the restoration of the Les Plateau in China. And as he says it, like after that day, he just knew he wanted to commit the rest of his life to restoring desertified lands. And um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary on the documentary photographer, Sebastio Salgado, but one of the really beautiful things about his story is that he was totally gutted from his time documenting all these famines and wars and really depressed and felt like no one deserved to live. He returned to his family farm, which was totally denuded and wrecked and deforested. And they decided as a family to try to restore it. So within 13 years, a young diverse forest came back and they didn't really know that much about what they were doing when they started. They got some outside help. And he said at the end, you know, he had been as wrecked and desertified as this land. And, and by the end of this process, or once the life began to return, his inner life began to return to. And 
that was a huge lesson for me you know that our desertified inner lives can be restored i guess the takeaway i i hope for you and for me or for readers is um, coming full circle from the epigraph it ends with some lines from allen ginsberg's song which is the weight of the world is love and you know the weight is too heavy you have to give it and I believe that that is true, that it is a painful and heavy burden not to give life to that which gives us life. And it is a painful burden to know that the way that we're living makes life impossible for other species and future generations. And on the other hand, I think it's not guilt that motivates us to act as effectively as the idea of a positive construct. And I think that there is a lot of fun and beauty and pleasure to be had in working together to restore these wounded places and to restore our connections to each other. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lisa Wells. That was a great presentation and a great synopsis of a really long, detailed and pretty heavy book that offers so many insights and so Lisa Wells, author of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. This is a KPFA-sponsored event. Thanks to all of you for coming out here this evening. We are in our Q&A session right now, and I'd love to hear from anybody out there. We've got quite a number of people in attendance, and I know some of you, and actually I know some of you that probably have comments or questions, certainly comments at least. It is Berkeley after all, even if we're virtual. Lisa Wells, let's see if we can get some people here to ask some questions. It's a really detailed book and it's an incredible mosaic of different narratives, you know, from chapter to chapter. And there are so many different things that you weave into the picture from your life and your encounters with so many different people. I really liked when you were talking about holding space for iconoclasts. That's a, such an important thing. And I feel like you did that all throughout your book and you did it really well. And I think also it makes us think as readers, as everyday people in the world, the, the what can I do people. There's the people that you are interacting with and you're describing in the book in many ways. For so-called mainstream or dominant culture, these things seem more outlandish. It's hard to get a clear, nuanced look at what many of these people are saying and doing. And as you said yourself, some may say like, what are you doing hanging around with these folks or you don't seem to fit in with these folks. And I think it's kind of curious, the whole idea of fitting in and the whole idea that we have as humans taking ownership of things. And, and you use the term colonial uh, purposefully and, and I think contextually a number of times, uh, certainly historically so. Um, but I, I come back to that idea of, of the many things that these folks are really trying to do something about and change. There's also a lesson in it for everybody that we can all point to something and find something that we can do in, in our lives. So what pragmatic, and I don't want to say advice because I know in your book, you specifically say you don't go far with prescriptions. You quote Rumi. Uh, we can come back to that later. But what are some things that you can talk about or some things you maybe can give as examples that are everyday manifestations of some of these types of very committed individuals and groups that you have spent a lot of time with? Well, I'd be happy to share some of the particulars from their stories. In terms of talking about what the proverbial you and I could do, I don't resist that question on some ideological grounds or whatever. I don't know how to answer it because I am a firm believer in individuals. And I think 
probably the best plan of action is to do what you love and find a way to put what you love in service to something greater. I do think it's helpful to think about the generations that would still like a chance to live and really align your efforts with them rather than the flavor of the month or what you're afraid of, because we all have one foot in the grave. That's very general. In terms of these different communities, I think in every case, there's an ecology of transformation. So these are folks who are reevaluating the messages that they've received and have been enculturated by. They're reevaluating their sense of purpose on earth and to other people. You know, like a lot of the healing has to do with learning how to live in community again, because that's not easy to do. And becoming responsible to a place, like rooting to a place, figuring out where your water comes from, figuring out where your food comes from, figuring out what kind of toxic effluence is coming from upstream and just centering your efforts locally in that way, where you really can affect massive change, as we see in the case of Ron Good in the Meadow. The other thing I'll say, though, the only bigger picture thing that I, that I talk about in the book is John D. Liu and these other guys, this guy Thies van der Hooven, they call themselves the weather makers. And they're <laughs> advocating for the restoration of these strategic places on the planet that if restored, they, they believe, could affect pull weather patterns across regions beneficially, like return the old weather patterns. So rather than having you know, all the moisture suck up and be held in the atmosphere where it can't precipitate as rain as it does over um, the Sinai Peninsula, and then it manifests as these crazy summer storms over Europe, which we've been seeing lately. They believe if you could restore this one key location like Bardwell um, on the Sinai Peninsula, that it could totally shift the moisture so that not only will the moisture return to the Sinai and not only will they, you know, capture carbon and sink water locally, but that it could return some moisture to the U.S. West Coast and return some of the moisture to China. And it's pretty amazing and pretty radical, but compared to some of the big geoengineering stuff that's on the table right now, relatively safe, because what are you doing? You're restoring a habitat. So I think that's kind of exciting and promising. I think it's a stellar response to the question. We have a question from an anonymous attendee. Do you believe, and it's related to what you're just saying, do you believe the type of work you've described is sufficient to salvage enough of the planet for life to continue if it were being done on a larger scale as opposed to having to take down the dominant culture? I don't know. I want it to be enough. I don't think any of us really know. What I say at the end of the book is that and it's certainly true for anybody who had the displeasure of reading the IPCC report. It's like, there are some pretty terrifying scenarios and we don't have total control at this point for how things play out. But for every one of those frightening scenarios, there's someone on the land who's sowing seeds for a garden they won't live to see. And to me, there's no better work than that. You know, Even if it's a figurative garden, whatever your pleasure and your work is, we have to try. So I don't know if it'll be enough. Another anonymous attendee commends you for an excellent presentation. They say, I love the analysis of the various cultures. It's also kind of a mind-bending acceptance of a potentially painful transition that we all face. It's a difficult conversation. I would add that because it's a difficult conversation, it's well worth having. And I think your book really spurs that kind of, of conversation in a lot of ways. 
and you give a lot of ins. There's a lot of different people and different characters in the story that I think give different readers places to, to connect if you mm. and sort of take away something that they can do that then gives them ideas of things that they could do. Like you just said, what do we do? Um, do we tilt at windmills and shake our fists at the corporate man? Um, sure. I mean, but we also do what we can do where we are. Yeah. Right. And, and make those kind of changes, which I think you were pretty clear about. I feel like often we're given this false choice between either hedonistic acceptance, you know, like let's just get drunk or whatever, or be miserable. And to me, that just seems like your misery and your guilt and those kinds of things might be useful in temporary bursts, but it's not a sustaining thing. I also just want to say the idea is that there's a lot to gain. To talk about my own backyard, literally, I had never kept a plant alive in my life. I was like a total, you know, like the grim reaper. Plants would cower when I came near. And as I wrote the book, I turned this weedy yard into a garden and figured out how to make the soil on this little plot work. And that's not going to save the world, but it is representative of a sea change and it gives me so much pleasure. And so I think reconnecting to each other in these ways and taking something that's kind of desiccated and homogenous and turning it into something vibrant and a, a source of life for like pollinators, there's pleasure in that. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. attendees asks is the bioneers movement relevant to your to your topic i don't know enough about it but but it had it did come across um you know i feel like that was an adjacent world that would come through um my research but i i didn't dig into their stuff but i know that some of the people i'd written about have given presentation for bioneers so i i would like to learn more about it joanna monqueros asks what do you feel could be a timeline for the end of modern civilization? Dust off your crystal ball. If we don't make massive changes, and this, this is right on another attendee that said, when you say we all have one foot in the grave and won't take too long, how long do you think we have? Yeah, I was actually referring just to our mortal lives. It's helpful to remember that we're all going to die, as corny as that sounds. I think when you're facing this work, it's helpful to remind yourself how small you are. You're not going to save the world, just you, but you can do your little part. In terms of timeline for collapse, I sort of think we're seeing it. I think 
it's not something that happens one night. I think it's a process of decline. I think you see it as these big disasters happen or plagues or uh, anything that disrupts the supply chain, how quickly things break down. So I think that's why actually this transition movement makes sense because there's really no reason to wait. The time is now to start figuring out like, how might I take care of my needs in terms of food and water and shelter and And the other thing I will say is the hard skills, as they call them, like all the survival stuff, it's useful, but it's really pales in comparison to social technologies because many hands make light work. And when we cooperate together with our neighbors, we can make amazing things happen. And one person knows a lot about berries and another person knows a lot about shelter building and together you make a go of it. So I'm definitely not advocating this individualist doomstead kind of thing. I didn't think that the kind of climate catastrophes we're seeing lately. I didn't think it would happen so soon. I mean, honestly, it's been surprising to me. One of the attendees asks, have the ecosystem restoration camps developed and gotten popular support? So last I checked, they keep adding new ones. It seems like it's more of a cooperative effort, like local folks start their own and run their own camps. But I don't know actually where they're at. Another attendee uh, asks if you're familiar with Hope Punk and Solar Punk, uh, hopeful, positive science fiction. No, but I want to be. (laughs) (laughs) The same person asks, after writing this book, where did you end up in your spiritual journey? If you, in fact, have one. You know, I feel like this took years off my life, this experience of writing the book. I was wrestling with a lot of the, not just the scary data, but like a lot of the questions, which to me, I think if we're honest are not really easily answered. If anything, I feel like my view is deepened and more complex, like my sense of our dilemmas, but I don't have, I have less of a sense of surety about any of it, which one would hope would be the outcome of deep study. But yeah, I think now my main interest is in implementing some of what I preach about at the end of the book, which is uh, actually walking the walk and um, trying to uh, recover some of the relationships that have been lost to, I mean, I blame the iPhone basically, uh, you know, and the like always busy sort of, you know, consumer capitalism, we're always working. Um, So, you know, trying to actually return to some of those punk ethics around, you know, uh, resisting uh, this machine that wants us all to uh, orient as if we're brands and corporations and getting to know my watershed, et cetera. But I think the next book will probably be about group dynamics and shared psychology and how to cooperate with others, how to play well with others. Another attendee asked, is there an idea or belief you've come across that gives you peace of mind or spirit, despite knowing what the future likely holds? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of legacy, that we have an opportunity as individuals and as communities to really leave a positive legacy, and that we don't really know how any of it's going to play out. So these gardens that Phoenicia attended for 40 years, they might still be hanging around when somebody desperately needs them, when they cross their path by luck. These meadows that Ron has restored could prevent the next catastrophic wildfire from 
you know, torching the canopy of these ancient black oaks. And um, so to me, um, just this idea of, of active love as legacy, that is the thing that, um, that fuels me. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, you do get into that in your last chapter, you kind of coalesce some of the ideas and you say at the end to begin stoking what Daniel Quinn called the fire of life. And then you quoted Rumi saying, let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And, and you then said that's about as prescriptive as you care to get. Yeah. Let the beauty we love be what we do. It's very simple. It feels good to give life to it's mutual amplification to give life to that, which gives you life. One of our attendees has a comment saying communities need to develop the local resources to replace commercial resources. These are the most crucial to a stable transition. The co-op model needs to be funded at the scale of utilities, uh, which should also be public. (laughs) Um, Government would naturally be responsible for such if not under the thumb of the marketplace. Any, Any comments on that model? I mean, I endorse this view. If anyone's gonna do it, it's gonna be you guys in California, maybe followed by Seattle, the city, none of the adjoining counties. I would like to use Gavin's comment to take us out here. Lisa, hey. is there anything else you'd like to like to add here or say before we make some concluding remarks? I just want to say I was pretty nervous to do this and I feel so welcomed and grateful to you all for your generous questions and thank you to Mickey. We're really grateful for you being here. And uh, Gavin says, wonderful presentation. I'm not only inspired to pick up Ms. Wells' book, but also reread some Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that opening to Desert Solitaire is, it's like the best song you want to play over and over. Yeah. And I have to say, uh, Believers Making a Life at the End of the World, it's a fascinating, riveting read. It's got a lot of ups and downs. Um, it doesn't shy away from the major challenges we face, but it really offers, I think, real hope in terms of what we can do and just by looking at what people are doing. And I think it's really inspiring. And I honestly can't imagine how difficult it was for you to write, write this. And you're also a phenomenal writer. And I, I really enjoyed reading just the passages I and mean, just the writing alone. It's obvious that you're also a poet. So, oh, thank you so much. Um, but I would also like to take this opportunity to remind us all this is an author talk and they have a book and Berkeley or wherever you live probably has hopefully left still a fantastic independent bookstore. Yeah. Um, Like where Lisa was from in Portland, there was Powell's. And so rather than go online and habitually go to the Amazons of the world, not the ones that are now half cut um, and causing some of the cataclysmic changes we see, but, you know, go to a real independent local bookstore and pick up a copy of either this or any of your other favorite books and support those local establishments because they are our community. And I lived in Berkeley for a long time and it is not short on independent bookstores. And I know that some of them are now gone and have shuttered sadly. Please consider doing what you can if you're able to actually get a hold of the book, donate it to a teacher, donate it to a school, donate it to a library. These are really great things that you can do to help share Lisa's work with other people in the community. And with that, I want to thank you, Lisa Wells, for taking time out of your schedule to speak with us about this book that you spent so much much time writing and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us about it. I think you've given us a lot to take away and 
really man, you know, turn into things that, that we can do and maybe start, give us a place to start having these, these really difficult conversations, making a life at the end of the world. So thank you, Lisa Wells. Thank you so much. Thanks, all of you. Thanks, everybody, for coming this evening. Special thanks to Ken Preston, Bob Baldock, Ephraim Colbert, and Jose Gonzalez. Certainly thanks to all of you for being here this evening. And we'll certainly hope to be sharing excerpts of this on an upcoming Project Censored show. Don't forget to support Community Radio. Thanks a lot. Everybody be well. We'll see you next time. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Potential fiend at the table, then you're probably on the menu.